Hey community, welcome to our sermon podcast for wanderers, seekers, and thinkers, for deconstructing and reconstructing. This is a feed of Open Door Church, a faith community focused on God's love and grace, a progressive church built around action, community, and people. Enjoy this week's message and check back often as we're posting new content every week. Essentially, we've been asking the question, what does it mean to live in exile? If, in fact, maybe first we're asking, are we living in exile? And secondly, if yes, then what does it mean to live in exile? And what can we get from the biblical text, the Hebrew scriptures about living in exile that we should carry forward? Some things we're, we're learning we should probably leave behind and just let that be a biblical theology thing, and we should press on into new identity. But, but there are pieces that are extremely important and that we can quickly overlook. In fact, we're going to move into Ezra, not Ezra Nehemiah today, where we often have a very uh, positive, feel-good, happy-go-lucky kind of attitude toward Um, But there are indications that there are things boiling under the surface that we're missing. And in fact, things not just boiling under under the surface, but active, we'll say resistance, active resistance to the way in which uh, the Persian Empire is responding. So just to catch you up a little bit, uh, we are in the historical period of the exile in the biblical text, and we've been, so that. Quick story, I know if you've been here, I'm sorry, but if you have not, uh, that quick story is uh, God gives a, a king to Israel and Judah, and, uh, and they are surviving for quite some time on their own. We have two kingdoms, kings in the north and kings in the south, and, uh, and in 722, the Assyrian Empire comes in and... Uh, and lays siege on the northern kingdom, overtakes them. And so we have a period of time where we only have the southern kingdom of Judah. And then, which houses Jerusalem and the temple. So all is not lost. We can maintain our theology of the temple. We can maintain our our theology of the presence of God in in that storyline. But... When the Babylonians then come to power over the Assyrians, the Babylonians are not as friendly to Jerusalem. In uh, shoot 598, in 598, come and destroy Jerusalem. And excuse me, 587. There was a siege in 598. Another one in 587 when they actually destroy the temple. Now everything is coming. To crumbles. Everything comes crumbling down in 587. And uh, in the process, as, as part of their political prowess, you could say, as part of the way they do business in the world around them, they take uh, a, a significant number, maybe 10%, as much as 20% of the population, they move them to Babylon in an effort to pacify the city of Jerusalem and the kingdom of Judah. So if you remove the people uh, that are in control, that the, the politicians, uh, the religious leaders, 
the social elite, the, the people of wealth and privilege, if you remove that seg- segment of population, you get uh, a large piece of control and, uh, and organization that is lost in the process. And so you, you end up pacifying a community without completely destroying them without just wiping them out. So the idea is we can, we can control this land, we can control this people simply by moving some of them around. And so that group moves into Babylon, and as we talk about this, the story of exile and what it means to be in exile, we are essentially talking about this community. Again, the size is difficult to assess, but we're talking about this community that are living in Babylon in the midst of uh, in the midst of this story with the with the temple destroyed, that's where we stopped so far. So that's the period of the exile. Along comes the Persian Empire. Immediately, the Persian Empire has a different way of ruling the lands that they control, and immediately they send. Uh, or allow people to go back to the land and begin rebuilding the temple, which is massive. This is a huge deal. Remember, the theology here is that God is in control. God used the Babylonians to punish us for our sin. God used the Babylonians uh, to uh, to reignite our our passion and faith in God as a consequence for breaking the law. Remember, all of this is part of their core theology about how God works in the world. And for a large part, they maintain a a large piece of that going through. And when they're given the rights to come back and rebuild their temple, they are still singing praises of God um, in the text. In the text, uh, we also have moments, uh, Ezekiel lamentations. We have moments of extreme lament, extreme anger, extreme frustration over God who has who had promised everything in control of this land. This is this is the land that God has promised us. This is this is a God who promised presence to be with us, not. Not like an end date. There's no statute on that, uh, a statute of limitations on that. This is, this is God promised to be with us. The temple was a symbol of that. Not just a symbol, but a literal place for God to dwell among the, the people of Jerusalem. And so when Cyrus says, guess what? You can go back. You can rebuild your temple. There is great joy. Naturally, there is uh, there is naturally an excitement and a recognition, uh, a gratefulness. We read this. Sometimes we refer to this story as one thing: exile and restoration. Exile being this dark ages period when the Babylonians, when the Assyrians, the Babylonians come in, rip our people from from where they were. Uh, move us to another land, uh, persecute, enslave, forced labor. Uh, all of that is part of this story. 
And then, and then this moment of restoration when Cyrus begins to allow them to restore the land and we have a temple rebuilt uh, over the next um, many years. But all of that is often told together. Exile and then restoration. Exile being a moment of consequences and punishment and restoration as God hearing the voices and the cries and the, and the return to obedience and restoring the temple, restoring the land, restoring the people. I want to unveil a slightly different story this morning because we tend to read Ezra Nehemiah, which granted, unless you've literally sat down and read through the whole Bible, you probably skipped Ezra Nehemiah. It's not exciting reading necessarily. I mean, it, it depends on who you are. Let's, let's leave it there. But we typically sit down to read Ezra in this, in this moment of hope, which I promised for this week, and I'm sorry I'm not delivering on, but in this moment of hope, in this moment of moving forward, and, uh, and the reality might be a little bit more sinister than that. Again, we're relying on information from a specific group of people uh, of people, not the fullness of the story. Uh, external sources don't help us a whole lot in, in really identifying what the history looks like. Uh, so we're relying on what is really a, a theological retelling of this story from a specific perspective. So that's, that's an important piece to remember. Um, but let's, let's look at Ezra. We can start with chapter 1. Let's read for a second. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also in a written edict declared. Are you ready? This is our moment of restoration. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of those among you who are of his people, may their God be with them, are now permitted to go up to Jerusalem in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals besides freewill offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. This is our moment. This is the moment. This is the moment of restoration. The king of Persia has just identified the God of Israel as the Lord, the God of heaven, and has asked for us to rebuild the temple. This is the moment we've been waiting for. But let's back up a quick second. What really is a decree? And I'm going to lay out several things. It's not going to be that exciting this morning, but it is. I'm going to lay out several things. So this is not on its own. But what really is a decree? Permission. It is a, 
it is a piece of paper permitting them to go and live in their land. Do you recall other instances of papers permitting one to live in their own land? When times get difficult, we have a tendency to do things like registration of individuals, of groups of people, and then we give them papers to say that they are okay to live where they live. During the Holocaust, every Jew was registered. During uh, Japanese internment in the States, people were registered, and to leave their camps, they were given papers. They were thankful. You can have, you can go and travel for this specific reason. Carry this paper with you that says that we give you permission to travel in your own land. If you are Hispanic, living on the southern border of the states right now, you may be stopped and asked, right or wrong, for your papers. If you are in exile or if you are a refugee in a land where you don't speak the language, what are the first words that you learn? Papers? Immigration papers? Police? Immigration authorities? This is, this is part of life. To be in exile, to be under the rule of a foreign entity, this is part of life. And you are given permission to go about normal parts of your life. Let's fast forward to chapter 5 of Ezra. And there's two things that are happening here. We're going to do one to continue this line of thought on permission. Uh, at the same time, this is verse 3, at the same time, uh, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, uh, Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree? Where are your papers? Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? You don't have the right to build your house, to go about your everyday business, to be an individual, autonomous adult that makes decisions about your own life. You don't have that privilege without these documents. Where is you, where, excuse me, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Oh, and what are the names of the men who are building this building? Do you hear in, in this, in, in one sense, there is this moment of gratitude for the, for the ability to return to their land and rebuild the temple and rebuild their homes. And in the next, there is this recognition that someone else determines what we get to do and where we get to be. In fact, in Nehemiah, the question is asked, why is it that we are still slaves in our own land? 
the land that you gave us, speaking to God, the land that you gave us, that you promised us, that is now in foreign control, and the the fruits of this land are going to a foreign people. Why is it that we are slaves in our own land? Whether that's figurative or literal, all of those people that, that were named previously are people that have asked this question about the land that they live in. Not just live in. Land that is that they are native to. So they write a letter to then King Darius to say, did you know that this was happening? These people are building houses and making autonomous decisions without a decree. This is the underside of what we're missing. There was a, a researcher that was uh, doing interviews in, uh, on, uh, of Japanese Americans that had spent uh, time in internment camps around the, in the L.A. area. And, uh, and from the parents, first thing they heard was gratitude for those papers to travel into other places. Uh, for, per, for personal reasons, for educational reasons, uh, etc. A gratitude that they got to leave. From the children, he always heard in response a bitterness that there was a need as an American to carry papers in America that allowed them to travel. You see, there's, there is this there is this both and that's happening in this story. And often we forget in the excitement of being able to restore the temple, we forget that there is this underlying current of who's controlling the land. And the question here is, if this is the underlying view that Persia is still, that they are still under persecution, that they are still in this place of... Um, of exile in their own land now. The question is, how are they responding? And what we have is their story. What we have is what they've written down. And what they've written down are these subtle cues of telling the story in a way that puts God in charge. So let's go back to, uh, real quickly, we'll go back to Ezra chapter 1. We read it already, but we'll, we'll take note of something else. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order, uh, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, did you catch all that? The Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia. Cyrus isn't in charge. In their story, in telling their story, in living it out, Cyrus is still at the hand of God. To stir up is often used in this context of, uh, of arousing someone to respond to God. And it is often God working in the world, a way that God is working in the world in the, in the Hebrew Scripture. So that He sent all throughout the kingdom and in written edict declaring. So in this subtle little moment... God is the one in charge. Cyrus just appears to be in charge. 
and we flip back to chapter 5, and we back up two verses. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Ido, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. These are the people with authority. It is Haggai and Zechariah that they look to first for authority. And with them were the, were the prophets of God helping them to set out to build the house. So under the direction, under the advice, under the uh, authority of these two prophets of God, not under Cyrus, not under Darius, not under uh, Persia, but through the mouth of God, they hear we've been given authority to act in this way. And it is an earthly response that says, where are your papers? Who gave you the decree? Let me register the names of people doing the building here. Let me send off to Darius and get a response. You see, there's this internal dialogue that's happening. Uh, Persia says, we're going to allow you to do this. Jerusalem hears, God has stirred you to allow us to do this. And when you tell that story, you begin undercutting the authorities around you. You begin, you begin telling the, the subversive message that God is in charge. We live out this faith in a place of exile, but in a place of strength from God who is truly leading us. Let's do one more. So we've got God stirred. We've got the prophet's authority, 5.1. And then also uh, in 6, 6.14. And according to the word sent by King Darius Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, uh, Shethro Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what King Darius had ordered. So the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edom. Again, earthly structures are allowing this to happen, but only at the hand of God, only through the prophesying of, uh, of God's people. And the last thing that we're going to look at uh, this morning is a moment, again, quite subtle. But we see it again and again. When you come before a king, what's the proper posture? You bow before the king. But in these Persian uh, throne stories, uh, sometimes re referred to as throne folk tales or, uh, or throne narratives, you have uh, over and over. So we've got, we've got Daniel. We have Esther. We have the, this moment in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, you have these moments where they don't come and bow before the authority. And the language is stand before the king. Subtle, but vocal and observant readers hear the language, recognize this moment of actually you are not the authority and the story is told 
right or wrongly or historically or not historically as these people standing before the king. Fearful almost always, but standing before the king. And the language that often gets used is a language called that, that usually turns up in our scripture as Ezra took courage, uh, which on the outset might just mean uh, Ezra was afraid and came before the king uh, anyway, even though he was afraid. But that phrase to take courage is the same phrase that uh, that the text uses when they're preparing for battle. It's the same phrase that uh, that the text uses when God is granting them a unique courage to go and act in a way above and beyond, to stand up to oppression, to stand in the face of the oppressor. And that's what happens in each of these cases. Esther and Mordecai stand before Haman. Uh, Daniel stands before the king. And Ezra takes courage in this moment. Uh, we're now in chapter 7. Sorry, I didn't tell you that. Stands before, uh, before the king uh, Artaxerxes and takes courage. And if we're going to continue this, verse 27 of chapter 7. Blessed be the Lord. This is... Uh, after Artaxerxes has granted them permission to continue, the God of our ancestors who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to glorify the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and who extended to me steadfast love before the king. Mercy, often mercy, often... I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, sometimes the word chesed here, steadfast love, is used in a military context. And here with a foreign power, I think it's, it's fair to understand it in this way. I did it anyway. I said I didn't want to do it, but here we are. And, um, and so it's important to hear that God is granting this mercy in the face of a foreign power. It's not simply uh, steadfast love. It is, it is protection, and the language continues. Steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Remember the phrase, the hand of God and an outstretched arm? Does that sound familiar? Uh, we hear it often, and it, again, is God's, it is, is the sort of the biblical way to say that God is with them in a military context. An outstretched arm is, is often the language used to, uh, to control defeat, to, uh, to protect an army of Israel. And here, in this moment, Ezra, re Ezra reminds the people, we have, we have gotten this decree, we have gotten this ruling because... God extended to me the steadfast love, the mercy before the king and his counselors. Even in fear, that's inserted, not actually there. Even in fear before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage. And God's hand was upon me. 
and I gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. All of this is is language that pushes into the narrative that Persia is in charge, that the king of Persia is the rightful authority over the land. All of this reminds us that it's not Persia that's in charge. It's God working through God's people that offer an alternative view of the world. We're going to do more on what this means next week because it took a while to lay that out because I, you can't just name one of those because one of those you go, yeah, decree, but still, you know, it, they were thankful for it. But it's multiple instances and stories where, where the people of God are telling an alternative story for Persia to hear for their neighbors to hear, for those that are oppressing them to hear. An alternative story. So the question is, as we think about what's next, how do we, how do we move this? Because we did a lot of back biblical work here. But how do we move this into our current context? What is the alternative story narrative that we are telling in the world? And how are we telling it? We talked about the street preacher last week. Not a great way to tell the alternative narrative. That doesn't null the need for an alternative narrative. In a world where money and power and consumerism are still our meta-narrative, where fear-mongering is the normal part of how we do politics and the world and both locally this is Maple Ridge, Pitt Meadows, Surrey. This is this is not simply US politics. We watch the same story being told through the powers of the world. What is the alternative narrative? And are we telling the alternative narrative on Facebook? Or are we telling the alternative narrative in how we live and walk and breathe? Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Open Door Church. Our intro and outro music was created by Lee Rosevere and is used under a Creative Commons by attribution license. Have a great week. Ask the hard questions and explore God's love. Everyone is always welcome to join the journey with us at Open Door. Learn more at opendoorfamily.ca. That's opendoorfamily.ca.